your son today. We need to know him better than we already do. Need to know him more fully than we already do. But for this to happen, we need to be in your word. We need to be with your people. And we need your spirit to reveal your character so that we too might be worshipers of the living God as you have revealed yourself, not as we have conceived you. Reveal yourself to us today, Lord God of hosts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So obviously in the coming days, there's going to be a whole lot of attention on Jesus. Even Newsweek magazine sometimes does a full spread. Back when John Meacham was a fellow Swanee grad, was the editor there. There was always uh, some sort of icon on the, the front cover of Newsweek. And there's a whole lot of attention on the historical Jesus and what can we know was true historically and what's false historically and all the debates about whether he's a real person or not. But there's always a tension on Jesus, like it or not, atheist or person of faith. He comes up during this season. Many people may even come to faith and begin learning to follow him during this season. Christmas and Easter people come and especially in this pandemic year, there's just a whole lot of hunger for something, anything. What can I hold on to that's true, that's real? He will be depicted as a baby in people's minds a lot during this season. He'll be depicted some as a young man, some as a teacher. Others will conceive of him as a faith healer or as a stern and wrathful judge, as a good shepherd, as a lion, or as a lamb. We're not as used to the picture that we have in our passage today than we are these other snapshots of who Jesus is. All of these snapshots of Jesus are true at once. In our passage for today, He's someone with fire coming out of His eyes. So all of these things are true of Jesus. All of these images are true of Jesus. They're biblical revelation. Not to mention the whole second person of the Trinity transfiguration thing. That's also Jesus. We have lots in our head when we think about Jesus. It's difficult to nail down just who Jesus is. See what I did there, Wayne? It's difficult to figure out who He is. But we have a picture in our minds that comes from growing up in the church, perhaps, or growing up in our culture and seeing Jesus depicted, maybe in an art class of Renaissance art. It's interesting to see Him depicted, often so poorly, which is perhaps why we are given such a solemn warning not to depict God's in graven ways, as it affects, even skews how we see Him. How ought we see Him? Seeing Him and knowing Him are necessary to worshiping Him, which is really the point this morning. Seeing Him clearly. 
Brennan Manning used to talk about how we need our image of God healed. When you think of the images of Christmas, what do you think of? When I say Christmas tree, what do you think of? Everybody in here has a different picture, probably picturing your Christmas tree at home, or maybe even a Christmas memory from when you were growing up in your family of origin. Or you might just be so fully present to your fellow Christians and to the preacher that, you know, all you can see is the tree before you. But when we say things like Christmas and we say things like Jesus and we use words like love, we all have different conceptions, different definitions, different connotations. And in our mind's eye, when we pray to Jesus, who do we see? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How do we picture Jesus when we pray to Him? Does, does our image of God, this is the question, does our image of God need some healing? Is He always out to get you with His wrath in your mind? Right around the corner of the future, unless you shape up your naughty and become more nice? Or is He all, always Grandpa God? ready for you to climb up in his lap, tell you what's bothering you, and make you feel better for having been hugged, your boo-boos kissed, and having been surrounded by that general smell of original Old Spice and aftershave. Our scripture passage for today has some very, very difficult images of Jesus, very different than we're used to seeing in our mind's eye, or even depicted in art. Whether felt board cartoon art or Renaissance painting, from wherever it is we have gotten our Jesus images that have lodged in the fold of our minds, we don't have this image of Jesus normally in our minds that we have in our passage from Revelation today. So I Googled it a bit, and it gets weird. I just Googled Jesus with fire in his eyes, and I'm going to need Robert's help with this. This, this was one. This is Aslan Jesus, right? Uh, our next one, this is, you know, kind of literal from the passage. Uh, he's got a sword. It's kind of metaphorical. It's coming out of his mouth um, because it's light, um, sort of fantastical fantasy. All right, Next. Um, this is, you know, sort of crusader warrior Jesus, kind of like that. What's the next one? Um, this is sort of, I don't know, uh, 70s church art Jesus or Bible, Bible illustration Jesus, um, but it's obvious from, obviously from Revelation. You got the, the hair like wool, the uh, the lights, the lampstands. All right, next. How did this get in here? <laughs> Barry Manilow, Jesus. All right, next. Now, I really like this one from Tony Evans. This is, this is Jesus the sequel. He's not a baby in a manger anymore, right? Next. This one is like the Shroud of Turin, Jesus, from this passage. Next, kind of ethereal. This is sort of like PC game Jesus, 
Like he's going to ask you some questions and you have to get them right or you don't get to, you know, go beat the boss, the beast. Um, next. I'm not even sure how to describe this exactly. This is like literally from the passage, Jesus. But interesting. All right, next. This is sort of like uh, Grateful Dead Jesus, kind of a Jerry Garcia. What's that? Bob Ross, a Bob Ross Jesus. Yeah, happy tree. He created the happy trees. All things came into being through him. Okay, next. I really like this one. This is like uh, Fantastic Four Jesus or kind of a Marvel Marvel version. What's that? Well, who is? Oh, she's obsessed with Fantastic Four. Do you think this looks do you think this looks like Fantastic Four Jesus? Yeah? All right. Does this look like baby Jesus? No. All right, the next one and the last one, um, this is sort of like, you know, has a, has a membership at phase three Jesus, you know? I mean, just ripped. That's what I'm going to look like uh, after I join phase three and lose my weight. Okay, you can, uh, my injury weight. Okay, you can, you can take the, the picture down. These are some strange pictures of Jesus, snapshots of Jesus we haven't seen before, art depictions we haven't seen before, and they get disturbing. Uh, These are the ones that I thought uh, we could handle. So, Jesus with fire in his eyes. I chose not to get into the the flesh eating in the second half of Revelation 19. I'll let Jeff preach on that sometime. But rather, as we continue our focus on the second coming of Christ in this last Sunday of Advent, before we shift our focus to baby Jesus and the incarnation of God in Christ, I wanted to leave us with some notions in our frontal lobe from depictions of the warrior king who slays the idolatrous prostitute usurping the bride's role on earth and partnering with the bride who has prepared herself to be wed to the righteous king. So hopefully, your mind is blown by these pictures like mine was while I was sifting through what was out there. We don't need to understand everything that's in this passage. What we do need to understand about Jesus is, surely I come quickly, no one knows the day or hour, it'll be like a thief in the night, second coming, and what what that has to do with us, and more importantly, how ought we to live because of the implications of this warrior king depiction of Jesus. It could be important, this particular depiction of Jesus, that's so foreign to the way that we normally see Jesus when we pray. Do do you see Jesus this way when you pray? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one who prays like Ricky Bobby to baby Jesus. But we we tend to have kind of a tame Jesus, don't we? Like the Jesus who, who, the, the let the little children come to me, Jesus. Not the Jesus coming in power on a white horse, sword coming out of his mouth, you know, fire shooting from his eyes. Is this the Jesus you pray to? 
Usually not. But this is a true depiction of who Jesus is. This is a snapshot, and it's, it's even more real in the sense that He has won the victory in His incarnation, death, resurrection, and now He sits on the throne, and this is the depiction of Him coming from the throne to establish His kingdom on earth. So in our passage, what happens? What happens when we see this vision? God bless you. When we see this vision of who Jesus is, what immediately happens in our passage? It's worship, right? It's doxology. Because when we see Jesus as He is in His glory, the, the four and twenty elders fall down in front of Him. Our life as disciples of Christ begins as it must with doxology, with worship, with praise. We are to be eternal worshipers of God, not as we prefer Him to be, but as He has revealed Himself to be in the Scriptures. Therefore, worship is not a matter of personal preferences, but a matter of dethroning self to let the only one who is worthy sit in His rightful place on the throne of our hearts. It also means a constancy of humility before His saving work. The God of the universe wrapped in the swaddling clothes of our humanity. The limitless one limiting himself and taking on our sin and then delivering us from death to life and from our unrighteous state to a state of being clothed with his righteousness as we are depicted as part of the bride, members in corporate in this passage. That is who we are by implication of who he is and what he's done and the resulting response from us has to be worship. We have nothing in which to boast except that which the Lord has done in us. I have nothing in which to boast except that which the Lord has done in me. That and Army has the Commander-in-Chief's trophy yet again. Go Army, beat Navy and Air Force. We did. We don't have anything to boast about. Any gift that we have, God put there, right, in the natural. Any spiritual gift He's given us, He gets credit for, He gets the glory. The spiritual fruit that He produces in us, who gets the glory for that? The Lord. How do we distract ourselves from this main point? We're trying to figure out in Revelation when He's coming, where He's coming. As Jeff was saying, you know, pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, It'll make your head hurt. It's not a bad thing to investigate those things, to see if you can glean anything about the character of God and who Jesus is. But if we miss the point, it's bizarre. And as a worship leader, I've been a worship leader for 25 years, from small gatherings to Anglican uh, an Anglican church of thousands when I was in seminary, and I've seen no greater disruption to churches than infighting between traditional and contemporary worship preferences, or high church and low church liturgical preferences. Who gets to be the most prominent on the platform? Who gets the biggest chair? Who gets to make the decisions based on whoever gets to have the say about what the criteria of success is for worship. 
And the greatest infighting I see in our denomination comes from those who have reduced Anglicanism to its accoutrements rather than its substance. And its substance begins with our common worship that ought to flatten any attempt by worshipers to put their preferences in the place of prominence instead of Jesus Christ. It is absurd on its face for worship to be anything about, uh, to be anything but completely about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Him we honor, it is Him to whom we give the glory. So when I was working uh, as the program director for a mission organization that was based in Tennessee, we would go down from Tennessee to the border and we would build houses for the poor. And when I got involved in this ministry, I was uh, just a worship leader, just a guitar player. I was just going down there to, you know, play guitar because that's what they had invited me to do. And I found that they hadn't integrated the idea of the work they did with the worship they were doing. So they were doing great things, but it was compartmentalized. It was, you know, we do devotions in the morning, we worship a little bit because we're Christians. That's what we do. Uh, crack open the Bible and, and we worship a little bit. And then over here, because the poor needed houses, we were building houses. But they hadn't integrated the two ideas so that the worship didn't stop when you stopped singing, but the worship flowed into the very building of the houses themselves. And so I got there and I was like, hey, this is crazy. We need to integrate these two things so that work and worship flow together. In the Old Testament, that is the connotation of worship. Serving continually before the Lord has a connotation of work. Sacrificial service, sacrifice of praise. And in the New Testament, when we worship, our, our idea is not that we sing for an hour on Sunday, it's that when we sing for an hour on Sunday, that song in our heart carries us through the week so that everything we do is an act of worship. So I had those kids, after we framed the walls, write with Sharpies scripture verses, blessings for the family on the, on the interior walls. And it was just so cool. We put that house together as an act of worship. And we were out there, pasty white people, uh, doing roofing in 115 degree heat. It was just weird. Mexicans, Mexicans were like, we don't even work in that heat. That's just foolish. What are you doing? But whenever we do things as an act of worship, it redirects people's attention off of us and onto the one who is worshipped. Just like when a kid in a class looks out the window, all the kids in the class look out the window. Our life lived in a posture of worship has that impact on other people. It, we redirect people's attention onto the work that we're doing for a moment. But if it's done in an act, as an act of worship, it redirects people's attention onto Jesus. What's the opposite, though, of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of you probably have the right answer in your head. The opposite of worshiping the one true God is what? Idolatry. And look what happens in our passage right after doxology. The Lord deals with the idolatrous prostitute 
who has been chasing after other lovers and causing other people to do the same, persecuting the saints, causing the saints to become martyrs. We do this too, don't we? We chase after worldly pursuits as though after another lover. And all of our anxiety, if we're honest, comes from that root of fear that we will not get that for which we are hoping and sometimes even feel entitled to receiving in this life instead of merely rejoicing that our names are written in the book of life or that we get to be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. And if we're honest, sometimes we would rather sup with the wicked. We long for the pods that this world's swine are eating. We hunger after the scraps from the table of this world instead of longing for the wedding feast of the Lamb as a member in corporate of His bride. Why? Why do we long to be filled with the things of this earth when what is on offer is the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are to be preparing ourselves as He comes. Thankfully, the Lord is dealing with this prostitute. In reality, has dealt with this problem. Does that make me millennial? I think that makes me a millennial. I don't know. Um, God bless you too. Um. So he's judged the great whore who's corrupted the earth with her fornications. When we chase after worldly pursuits, instead of letting our Savior be Lord over our lives, we fall into the trap of antinomianism, the belief that God's grace gets us off the hook for living immoral, idolatrous lives in the present. Conversely, if we are legalists, we boast in our own keeping of the moral law and judge others as not having done as well with the requirements of the law as we have. We make judgments about them. And both of these are participants with the great prostitute and the idolatrous corruptions of the earth. And the only way to be free of the sin that so easily entangles our flesh, both body and soul together, is to dethrone self and its cravings forever, to be crucified with Christ so that we can be raised with Him and counted among the multitudes of his worshipers. In worship, we allow God to commune with us and self-reveal so that we know him more and more, and we do this for the rest of eternity, starting now. The revelation of who God is, what he is like, his character, his desire to be our God, for us to be his people, his interventions in salvation history, his covenants with us that we couldn't possibly keep, that He has kept for us, that He might keep us, and we might be kept His for eternity. These are what we are to often repeat to one another as we speak to one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. But what instead are we putting before our mind's eye every day? Do we reach for the news or our phone, or do we reach for the Scriptures and communion with God? We have such a distracting society. I was listening to Bill Burr, the comedian, the other day, and he was like, you millennials, always on your phones. You know, if Jesus comes back, nobody's even going to know he's here because everybody's going to be like this on their phones. The temptation to distraction from worship, from adoration, 
from our right, our birthright as those who've been born again into Christ, our birthright is to participate with that warrior king in the advance of his kingdom. And for us to be a foretaste of the kingdom in the way that we live and move and have our being, the way we work. Now, some people think it's to suggest that we don't have a job or a career or a vocation in this life that is anything but secular and, and you and to be something to be uh, looked at with derision. But that would be Gnosticism. That's an early heresy. In fact, to be a worshiper of God revealed in the triumphant Christ and to be prepared for His second coming means that we bring that spiritual reality precisely into the midst of our jobs and vocations and careers so that we become priests in that context who call people's attention onto the glory of God in the midst of what we're doing, whether it's art or engineering. Do you want to do art or engineering? Both? You're having trouble deciding. Then maybe you should be an architect. They get to do both. But our work has to be taken up in a posture of worship so that it redirects people's attention onto Jesus. What happens out there isn't secular, and what happens in here being holy and better than what happens out there, that's just not the way it is. That's not the way it goes. We reveal the kingdom and its king by operating in a manner that is a foretaste of the consummation. When all is put right in the new heaven and the new earth, when we experience the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, we're not heading for a disembodied cloudland, folks. What do you think we'll be doing? If, if it's a disembodied cloudland, as I've said before, you can't play a harp without hands. All our pictures and depictions of what it will be like on the other side of Jesus rapturing us into a disembodied cloudland. That is not the gospel, and it's not the good news. The good news is we will be occupied with the cares and occupations and eternal discoverers and explorers of the kingdom and her king. But we don't have to wait for that. We can start that now. And in our passage, look how egalitarian it is. The elders throw themselves down. The martyrs throw themselves down. Look at how the great honor the small. They're all together, male and female. They all fall down and worship Christ the King. The elders, the saints, the martyrs, the whole people of God make up the bride of the Lamb who has prepared herself by sanctification into Jesus' righteousness to be a fitting partner in the establishment of His rule and reign. And she is clothed in the righteous deeds produced by the Spirit of God, birthing righteousness through the bride, the saints. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage feast of the Lamb, you and me. So what are you up to? What am I up to? Are we filling our hands with the works of the kingdom? Who is Jesus to you? 
how do you picture him? Do you picture him as coming with his clothes dipped in the blood of keeping the covenant for us because we couldn't possibly have kept the covenant? With angels, angel armies at his disposal, with the word of God like a sharp sword coming from his mouth, striking down the nations that have been built in opposition to his rule. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is Jesus to you? How do you picture him in your mind's eye when you pray? Do you pray to this warrior King Jesus who will come and establish his throne, who has angel armies at his disposal? As we see depictions of baby Jesus lying in a manger and we contemplate again the Christ child, let us consider again who he is. He is both lion and lamb. He is both Savior and Lord. He is both infant lowly and our high King. O come, let us adore Him.